Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine, advancing medicine through precision diagnostics and novel therapy. Although it's one of the newer developments to enter the cardiology space, transcatheter aortic valve replacement, or TAVR procedures, have already risen in popularity over the course of just a few years. And with the concept of TAVR proving successful, there's been a dramatic increase in new technologies within the industry. So how will this impact cardiovascular care across the broader therapeutic landscape going forward? This and other questions will be the focus of today's episode of Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and joining me is Dr. Howard Herman, Health System Director for Interventional Cardiology at Penn Medicine. Dr. Herman, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. So just to start off, can you share some of the clinical background and research interests that led to your current work today? Sure. I've been interested in the catheter-based approach to vascular heart disease ever since I started my career and my training more than 30 years ago. At that point, the only therapy we really had was the use of a balloon to open up a stenotic or stuck heart valve. And we utilized that for patients who had rheumatic mitral stenosis and for some forms of aortic stenosis. But the last 15 or 20 years, we've seen this explosion in new technologies that allow for the transcatheter treatment of both aortic stenosis, as you already mentioned. And now I think the next field of endeavor is going to be the world of mitral regurgitation. Really interesting. And thanks for sharing that, that background with us. But just a level set on how we've gotten to this current point with transcatheter therapies. What was the treatment experience like for you and the outlook for your patients before TAVR? And I'm thinking of, for instance, open-heart surgery when that was really the only option. That's true. As I mentioned, we did try the use of a balloon, just a straightforward balloon similar to what we use for angioplasty, but a bigger version in calcific aortic stenosis back in 1987 or 1988. And we found relatively quickly that that didn't work, that just blowing up a balloon gave some transient improvement to the stenotic aortic valve, but it restenosed very quickly within less than a year. And the field basically stayed still until about 2002 when Professor Alain Cribier in France tried putting a valve that was sewn inside a stent on a balloon and inserting that in the aortic valve. And he demonstrated the feasibility of doing that in a patient who had no other options back in 2002 who couldn't have open heart surgery, which is the traditional approach to this, where we cut it, we do a sternotomy or a mini sternotomy, open up the aorta, cut out the calcific aortic valve, and sew in a new one. So this was a catheter-based option. It could be done on a conscious patient, and it worked surprisingly well in that patient, and that really ushered in this whole era. We did the first transcatheter aortic valve replacement at the University of Pennsylvania in late 2007, and that's when it sort of began in the U.S. as an investigational procedure. And over the last 10 to 12 years, we've gradually marched down the risk profile of patients. First, we tried it in patients who had no other option. They couldn't have open-heart surgery, and it was found that it was clearly better than doing nothing. And most recently, with the uh, recent presentation of two large trials at the recent American College of Cardiology meeting, it was demonstrated that it's as good, if not better, than open-heart surgery, even for low-risk patients. So essentially, anybody with aortic stenosis is now a candidate for TAVR. That's fascinating. And just to understand that the first TAVR procedure being performed at your institution, that's um, quite a background to be able to move in on proving that this is a really successful new player in the field. But were there any roadblocks or obstacles that you and your colleagues came across throughout that evolution over the last several years? 
Sure. The development of this procedure has really evolved greatly. We're essentially on third and fourth generation devices. The initial devices were very large, often and most of the time required us to do a surgical cut down on the femoral artery in order to find, uh, to get into the artery with these devices because they were so big. And we were doing them all under general anesthesia, utilizing transesophageal echocardiography to, to help guide the positioning and the sizing of the devices. But over that evolution, we now have smaller devices that are easier to place and We've evolved from a procedure that was done only under general anesthesia and required five to seven days in the hospital to a procedure that we do now all percutaneously under conscious sedation while the patient is sedated but still awake, not on a ventilator. We don't routinely utilize transesophageal echocardiography, and most of our patients are going home in just a day or two and resuming their normal lives. For those just tuning in, this is Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine on ReachMD. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz, and I'm speaking with Dr. Howard Herman from Penn Medicine on the latest advancements in cardiovascular transcatheter therapies, such as TAVR. So, Dr. Herman, I want to come back to some of the work that you and your colleagues are doing to innovate this this field, to improve the safety and efficacy of TAVR. You've walked us through uh, some of the the work that's been done to get through some of these obstacles uh, to make it a much safer, faster, um, and more affordable procedure. Uh, what's the latest from your vantage point now uh, that's going on at Penn? So from the standpoint of TAVR, this has really become the procedure of choice for the majority of patients now with aortic stenosis. In the early days of this procedure, we were trying to figure out who should be a candidate for TAVR, and now TAVR has become the default, and we're trying to figure out who should be a candidate for surgery, if anyone. And there are still some candidates for surgery where it may be better, but we're gradually moving into this as a default strategy where the majority of patients with aortic stenosis will be offered TAVR. And we're treating younger patients, even some patients with bicuspid aortic valves, although that is still investigational. We're utilizing devices to help prevent stroke. We're minimizing the leaks that occur, minimizing the need for pacemakers afterwards. And it's really becoming a mainstay default strategy for the great majority of patients who have aortic stenosis. And in leveraging that, we began to use this and other technologies on the other valves. So we've learned that we can put TAVR valves in old surgical prostheses that are now failing, either in the aortic position or the mitral position. And we're gradually moving into new devices for treatment of mitral regurgitation, things like MitraClip, which we have been doing for a number of years, but now there are lots of new devices coming, including transcatheter mitral valve replacement procedures that are leveraging some of the experience we've learned from TAVR. And on that, that subject of mitral regurgitation um, and the investigations there, what's currently being investigated uh, from you at Penn and among your colleagues to help update and innovate on the technologies that are available for patients? So the major approved device for treating mitral regurgitation in the U.S. is the MitraClip. This is a, a little more complicated than just a clip. It's a device that functions like a clip and allows us to put together the anterior and posterior leaflets in their mid-portions to create a dual orifice valve. And that technology has been around since about 2003. In fact, we attended the second case in the, in the U.S. at that time and have remained one of the most the, the leading sites for doing MitraClip procedures. It's now approved for patients who are at high risk for surgery who have primary mitral regurgitation. But recent data in a trial that we were part of called COAPT 
demonstrated that it also works quite well in patients who have secondary MR. These are patients who have heart failure and mitral regurgitation, a much larger population of patients. And we've been seeing an increase in the use of MitraClip for those patients pending what we anticipate will be a relatively soon reimbursement decision by CMS. It is already FDA approved for that population. And then there are a number of investigational approaches that we are also part of for the patients who aren't good candidates for MitraClip. We're part of the um, CardioBand trial, which is a, a ring that can be placed percutaneously to do an annuloplasty, similar to what the surgeons do. And we have a device that also allows us to do um, some cinching of the ventricle just below the mitral annulus with a device that also reduces mitral regurgitation. And then there are several um, trials going on in the U.S. for transcatheter mitral valve replacement, true valves that are put in and dedicated valves for the mitral position. And we're part of the early U.S. feasibility trial um, utilizing the Evoke transcatheter mitral valve replacement and have done more of those than any other institution in the U.S. So I think the options that are going to be available for patients with mitral regurgitation are going to be increasing. We still have to prove which ones are best and for which patients. It's a more complicated disease than aortic stenosis, but I think the hope is that over the next five or 10 years, we'll reproduce the success of TAVR in the mitral position and even in the tricuspid position where we're starting to do it as well. That's excellent, and it speaks to remarkable momentum being carried forward for patients with mitral regurgitation. Let me swing back for a moment to aortic stenosis. Since we're on the subject of trials, there were recent studies that came out, were discussed at ACC, including Partner 3, um, Evolute, I believe, that are speaking to perhaps expanding the eligibility criteria for, for TAVR. You mentioned it's already a default and becoming fast a default for these patients. But what studies have come out, and uh, both in the recent past and perhaps are projected to come out in the future, in these research efforts for TAVR? These two were very important trials in that regard, both of which demonstrated that in low-risk patients, um, the Partner 3 trial showed that the TAVR with the balloon expandable device was superior to surgery. We had uh, fewer deaths, fewer strokes, and fewer rehospitalizations at both 30 days and one year, reaching superiority at one year over surgery. Similarly, the Evolute trial was designed a little differently. It had uh, an endpoint that only included death and stroke, but it also showed non-inferiority to surgery with endpoints that were actually slightly lower than surgery, although not statistically different. I think both of these trials, which have not yet been published but have been presented, and they were actually published online, they haven't been published in print yet, demonstrated that we're going to move into this lowest population pretty aggressively once there's FDA and CMS approval for it in that population. Currently in the U.S., somewhere around 50 to 55% of all patients with aortic stenosis are getting TAVR. This could easily bring that number to 70 or 80% of all patients with aortic stenosis. So there's going to be a rapid expansion for these patients. There are still some unknowns in this space. We know that patients who get TAVR do have a little bit more leakage around the outside of the valve than surgical valves that are sewn in, and whether these mild leaks over time have, are, are an issue for patients remains unknown. So we're going to be following the patients in these trials for 10 years in order to understand that better. And then there's the whole issue of durability. We don't know that TAVR valves are any less durable than surgical valves, but we don't have the same 
degree of follow-up for these patients that surgical valves have had over decades. So there is that concern that maybe these valves will be a little less durable and that for a younger patient that may be an issue, but at this point I don't think we have any evidence that that's the case. Well, Dr. Herman, uh, before we wrap up, I do want to stay on this theme of exploring the unknowns. I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think is ahead of us looking further down the road for transcatheter therapies beyond perhaps even mitral regurgitation and all the work that's being done at Penn there. Is there anything that you're particularly excited about in the near or long term? Well, I think mitral regurgitation is a big issue because it's, it's a more common problem. And if we had really good solutions for that, I think that will really change the landscape of, of the ability to treat patients. The other thing that I think is coming is going to be the use of these devices um, in concert. Many patients have more than one valve problem. It's not uncommon for a patient with mitral regurgitation to also have tricuspid regurgitation due to the flows going backwards into the pulmonary circulation, raising the pulmonary artery pressure, and that can lead to tricuspid regurgitation. There are patients who have aortic stenosis and mitral regurgitation. And I think ability to start to combine some of these therapies and really treat the entire patient from coronary disease with PCI to multiple valve lesions with different devices and really avoid open heart surgery altogether for a significant number of people is really going to be a big advance going forward. Well, with that great thought of treating the whole patient in mind and looking at what's next on the horizon to help us get there, I really want to thank Dr. Howard Herman for sharing his insights on transcatheter therapies and cardiovascular care. Dr. Herman, it was fantastic having you on the program. Thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from Penn Medicine. To download this podcast or to access others in the series, please visit ReachMD.com slash Penn and visit Penn Physician Link, an exclusive program that helps referring physicians connect with Penn. Here you can find education resources, information about our expedited referral process, and communication tools. To learn more, visit www.penmedicine.org slash physician link. Thank you for listening.